The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Tuesday. I'm Leslie Marsh. What day is it? You know, when you work from home and your kids go to school from home and you're home all the time, it's sort of like, what day is it? Oh my God, it's March, right? I don't know what day it is, what month it is, but I do know that this is the only true democracy in talk radio. We're glad you're watching us on Twitter's Periscope, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, soon to be LinkedIn Live, I think they call it. And uh, in addition to that, listening to the program uh, via radio stream and podcast. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday. It's now been confirmed to me that it is. Uh, In this hour, we have a great guest joining us later, but let's kick it off and check what's ripped. Well, today continued the Senate hearing with regard to the attack and the riots and the insurrectionist on Capitol Hill on January 6th. And during that Senate hearing today, the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, made comments on the insurrection on January 6th and on domestic terrorism. Take a listen. That attack, that siege was criminal behavior, plain and simple, and it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. It's got no place in our democracy and tolerating it would make a mockery of our nation's rule of law. The rule of law, of course, is our country's bedrock and it's our guiding principle at the FBI. That's why the FBI has been working day and night across the country to track down those responsible for the events of January 6th and to hold them accountable. We're chasing down leads, we're reviewing evidence, combing through digital media to identify, investigate, and arrest anyone who broke the law that day. And our greatest partner in this investigation has been the American people themselves, your constituents. Citizens from around the country have sent us more than 270,000 digital media tips. Some have even taken the painful step of turning in their friends or their family members. But with their help, we've identified hundreds of suspects and opened hundreds of investigations in all but one of our 56 field offices. And of those identified, we've arrested already more than 270 individuals to date, over 300 when you include the ones of our partners, with more subjects being identified and charged just about every single day. The FBI is committed to seeing this through, no matter how many people it takes or how long or the resources we need to get it done. Because as citizens, in a sense, we're all victims of the January 6th assault, and the American people deserve nothing less. Unfortunately, As you noted, Mr. Chairman, January 6th was not an isolated event. The problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. At the FBI, we've been sounding the alarm on it for a number of years now. 
I've been sounding the alarm about domestic terrorism since I think just about my first month on the job when I first started appearing up on the Hill. And I've spoken about it in maybe a dozen different congressional hearings. Well, there you have it from the FBI director with regard to domestic terrorism, a term that many people on the left and not just on the left have used. Well, there's something on the right they're using. And we also hear further during the Senate hearing today, the FBI director for Christopher Wray talking about Antifa and whether or not they played a role in the January 6th insurrection, as many on the right want you to believe. Is it true? Take a listen. Certainly, we're, while we're equal opportunity and looking for uh, violent extremism of any uh, of any ideology, uh, we have not to date seen any evidence of uh, of anarchist violent extremists or, or people subscribing to Antifa uh, in connection with the sixth. That doesn't mean we're not looking and we'll continue to look. But it's, at the moment, we have not seen that. And by the way, uh, Leader McCarthy in the House uh, said that there there was no tie to Antifa. FBI has said there is no tie uh, to Antifa. Um, Even the QAnon folks will tell you that they they brag that they did it and there was no tie to Antifa. Let's rip another. The United States is going to sanction seven senior Russian officials over the poisoning and jailing of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The senior administration officials reported that today. Now, why does this matter? Well, the sanctions represent the first penalties in the United States that we have imposed on Kremlin-linked officials, and that is since President Biden took office. He did pledge to confront Russian aggression when he campaigned. Administration officials told reporters on a briefing call that the United States intelligence has assessed, quote, with high confidence, that Federal Security Service FSB officers poisoned Navalny using the nerve agent Novichok. Now, the seven Russian officials sanctioned by the Treasury Department include FSB Director Alexander Bortkinov. Uh, Sorry, and I apologize, and I'm part Russian. My great-grandmother's from St. Petersburg. Uh, So I'm butchering my homeland, part of my homeland's language. Uh, uh, Domestic Policy Chief Andrei Yarin, First Deputy Chief of Staff Sergei Kiryenko, Deputy Defense Minister Alexei Krivorushko, Deputy Defense Minister Pavel Popov, Federal Prisons Director Alexander Kalashnikov, and Prosecutor General Igor Krasnov. Now, the U.S. will also add 14 entities linked to the production of chemical and biological weapons to Russia to a Commerce Department blacklist. The sanctions were coordinated with the European Union, and they announced separately today that they had sanctioned four of those Russian law enforcement officials for their roles in the arbitrary arrest, prosecution and sentencing of Navalny, as well as the ensuing crackdown on protesters. And here's what they're saying, quote, the United States is not trying to reset our relations with Russia, nor are we attempting to escalate. Uh, The official uh, added that this was the first in a series of actions responding to Russia's adversarial actions, noting that a response to the massive SolarWinds hack of U.S. government agencies would be coming sooner rather than later. But the official added the, the administration plans to work with Russia on issues like nuclear arms control, even as other aspects of their relationship are adversarial. We should be surprised with Russia if we do that. We do it with China, right? We call them out for the Uyghurs and human rights violations, their oppression of free speech by protesters in Hong Kong. 
but we do trade deals with them, right? Now, Navalny was an anti-corruption activist, often described as the man Vladimir Putin fears most. By the way, I got to say, are you crazy? I never would have gone. He went back to Russia, right? I never would have come back. I'll be honest. Uh, he was poisoned last August with Novichok. It is a calling card of the Russian security services. He's accused Putin of ordering the attempted assassination a charge that the Russian strongman does deny. Navalny spent months recovering in Germany before flying back to Russia three days before President Biden was inaugurated, and he was immediately arrested for allegedly violating parole. The attention, the detention sparked widespread protest across Russia. Navalny was sentenced to two and a half years in prison last month. He was transferred last week to a notorious prison camp known for imposing extreme psychological pressure on its inmates. In other words, mental torture. Between the lines, well, Navalny's allies have called on the United States and the EU to sanction a list of 35 Russian oligarchs and officials believed to be responsible or complicit in human rights abuses or corruption, arguing that their close ties to Vladimir Putin and vast international wealth would render the sanctions more effective. A senior administration official said today's action would focus on government officials, but that this was the only the first of a series of steps to come. Let's rip another. The House will vote on two immigration bills next week, including one to protect undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children, according to Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. That's what he said today on a call with the Democratic caucus. Now, this is likely the only realistic shot that Joe Biden and his administration has at this point to pass immigration reform. The two bills are called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act and the American Dream and Promise Act, and both passed the House with bipartisan support last Congress. Now, the first one would provide permanent residency for undocumented farm workers. The other would allow undocumented immigrants who came to the states as children to stay here in the United States and be able to apply for citizenship. Senators Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, Lindsey Graham, bipartisan Republican from South Carolina, introduced a Senate version of the DREAM Act last month, indicating the bill has at least some bipartisan support in the Senate. And with a close number 50-50, you only need some. Americans overwhelmingly support letting undocumented immigrants who come to the United States as children stay in the country and apply for citizenship. Now, Democrats are still whipping Biden's U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. That would reverse many executive orders handed down by the Trump administration, possibly providing citizenship for more than 11 undocumented immigrants. Congressional sources tell Axios the House does not have the votes on that comprehensive bill. Well, what's next after campaigning against Donald Trump by accusing him of putting kids in cages? Biden is now seeing a brewing child migrant problem. More than 700 across the border from Mexico into the United States without their parents were held in Border Patrol custody as of last week. A crisis at the border could make it harder for Congress to pass substantial immigration reforms. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines part one. We'll come back more from the rip, rip from the headlines after this and our great guest joining us a little bit later. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. We're back. We will continue with what's written from the headlines in just a minute, but I want to share with you some breaking news. The state of Texas, one of the largest in the country, will end its coronavirus restrictions next week. What? That's the upcoming, upcoming executive order from Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican. Uh, that happened during a press conference, that announcement in Lubbock. Um, now, after Abbott signs the new order, it will rescind previous 
orders. All businesses can open to 100% capacity. The statewide mask mandate is over. So this is what kills me. You're opening businesses. People aren't going to wear masks. They're going to come and go and be in closed spaces, a lot of people together. Um, But part of the state will be under mask orders. So they said it's time to open Texas 100%. Well, they're not opening Texas 100% of some of the sections are under mask orders. Um, And for nearly half a year, they said most businesses have been uh, open either 75% or 50%. And during that time, too many Texas has uh, Texans have been sidelined from employment opportunities. What about healthcare workers? What about their opportunities? The reason the states, Texas, California, all of them made the restrictions, made the masks, made the lockdowns is because the healthcare workers were saying, we don't have enough healthcare workers to take care of the sick. We don't have enough room. We don't have beds in the ICU. We don't have enough body bags. We ran out of body bags here in California. So, you know, he said too many small business owners have struggled to pay their bills. This must end. Yes. So tell your Republicans to work with the Democrats and pass the stimulus package so those checks can come because Democrats are going to do it now without you and your party. Rochelle Walensky is director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, warned states specifically against lifting public restrictions because coronavirus cases and deaths appear to be stalling. That's the worst thing we can do. Here's my prediction. Numbers of sick are going to go up in Texas. Number of deaths are going to go up. Healthcare workers and hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. We have three that we know of mutations of this virus. The virus will not stop trying to survive. Why should we stop trying to survive? And I mean, you want to open the state, at least keep the mask mandate. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so glad I do not live in a red state. That's all I have to say. I'm not going to be mean. But uh, I'm, you know, people want to. Recall Gavin Newsom. We're seventh in the world in vaccinations. Seriously, let's rip another. <sighs> I have to breathe for a second. Senior Democratic lawmakers in both chambers are unveiling climate and clean energy proposals this week. Uh, driving the news is Senator Joe Manchin, West, uh, Virgin- uh, West Virginia Democrat, who I often call a Republican, who chairs the Energy Committee, is proposing $8 billion in new tax credits to spur domestic manufacturing of climate-friendly technologies. Now, why does this matter? Well, Manchin, his vote is coveted for Democratic pri- priorities. It's a very narrowly divided Senate, so he's got a lot of power right now, right? Not just power, but leverage. Um E&E News points out that he's likely to use his bill as a bargaining chip when Democratic leaders seek his support for broad climate action. And the bill would steer $4 billion of the incentives toward regions where coal mines or coal-fired power plants have closed. Now, that's a priority for Manchin because coal is a big thing and a lot of people out of work in his state of West Virginia. They are, as you know, West Virginia major producers of coal. Um, and, you know, how, how is this going to work now? The bill would support new or retooled factories to build carbon capture equipment, renewables and advanced grid components, electric cars and more. The incentives are also available for upgrading factories to cut emissions. And the bill aims to revive an advanced manufacturing tax credit program first created back in the 2009 economy recovery package. Uh, Tax bills are under the jurisdiction of the Senate's Finance Committee. Co-sponsor, Senator Debbie Stabenow, friend of this program. Democrat from Michigan who was on that panel. And and let me just point out, here is just an example of exactly what Joe Biden, exactly what liberals and progressives and Democrats have been saying. If you get rid of a coal job, it can be replaced with a clean, green 
new job. This is a perfect example of that. So what is next? Over in the House, uh, leaders of the Energy and uh, Commerce Committee, the ECC, will unveil sweeping climate legislation. That's going to happen later today. So watch for provisions that could move under the budget reconciliation process, and that protects certain spending and tax measures from the filibusters in the Senate. Let's rip another. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, introduced a bill in the Senate yesterday. That bill would impose a new tax on the assets of America's wealthiest individuals. Now, the plan, which she introduced along with reps Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington, and Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania, is similar to a proposal that was the centerpiece of her campaign when she ran for president back last year in 2020. Uh, she is a new member of the Senate Finance Committee. She has long sought a tax increase on millionaires and billionaires in the United States, which, by the way, many millionaires and billionaires agree with. Uh, the bill would levy a 2% tax for people with a net worth between $50 million and $1 billion. Taxpayers with assets worth over a billion would be sub uh, subjected to a 3% tax. Now, the tax would not apply to people whose net worth is below $50 million. I think we can all agree the middle class, even the upper middle class, isn't being touched. The tax would not apply to people whose net worth is below $50 million. My net worth is far below $50 million. Sure yours is too. The bill sponsors estimate, and if not, adopt me. Uh, the bill sponsors estimate that it would raise $2.75 trillion in tax revenue over the next decade. The, and this is what they're saying, quote, the ultra rich and powerful have rigged the rules in their favor so much that the top 1% pay a lower effective tax rate than the bottom 99 a billionaire wealth, 40% higher than before the COVID crisis began. A wealth tax is popular among voters on both sides for good reason, because they understand the system is rigged to benefit the wealthy and large corporations. That's Senator Elizabeth Warren. The measure is likely to fare better in the democratically controlled House than in the 50-50 Senate. Bills often there need to receive 60 votes to pass, so it might not happen. Let's rip another. The sole Democrat elected to statewide office in Florida is calling on the U.S. House of Representatives Coronavirus Committee to investigate the state's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, for alleged political favoritism in coronavirus vaccine distribution. Like Marco Rubio? Hmm. That call comes in a letter that Florida's Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, who, will, uh, who, who sent that out yesterday morning, sent it to Reps uh, James Clyburn, uh, a Democrat from South Carolina, and he heads the Coronavirus Committee. Also, uh, Rep. Steve Scalise of Louisiana, the ranking Republican on that committee, the letter was obtained by Yahoo News over the weekend. Um, and this is what Freed writes, quote, my office has received frequent complaints about the state's vaccine strategy, charging DeSantis with, quote, an inept distribution of vaccines at best and corrupt political pa patronage at worst. Now, it is the second such call because there, you know, just a few days before, Representative Charlie Crist, Democrat of Florida, asked the DOJ to investigate DeSantis on much the same grounds. His letter, which was sent back on February 21st, alleged that DeSantis, who is a close ally of Donald Trump, is establishing vaccine distribution and administration sites in select locations to benefit political allies and donors over the needs of higher risk communities. Frist and Freed are both potential gubernatorial candidates, making their request for an investigation impossible to separate from politics, let's be honest. Then again, the pandemic has been hounded by politics from the start. It may just be that the politics in Florida are more bare knuckled and consequential than they are in most other places. Freed is one of DeSantis's most unstinting critics and she told not Yahoo News that Florida's vaccine distribution has been chaotic and without a plan. It's been inequitable with black and Hispanic residents left behind. And it's been corrupt 
with the governor's donors and political allies getting special access. The message is clear. If Ron DeSantis likes you or if you give his campaign money, you can cut line ahead of seniors, teachers, and essential workers. It's despicable and it needs to stop. Well, I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. We're going to stop right here, take a quick break, and come back with our guest right after this. Don't go away. Once again, thank you for listening on radio, on stream, on podcast, watching us on Twitter's Periscope, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and soon to be, if we're not on there already, uh, LinkedIn Live. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest in the second half of the hour is Alex McCoy. Alex is political director of Common Defense. They are the country's largest membership organization of progressive veterans with more than 180,000 members across the country. Alex is a Marine Corps veteran. So is my cousin Keith. Uh, who's been featured in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, MSNBC, CNN, and more. He helped develop the legislative strategy to successfully pass the Fairness for Veterans Act of 2016. Now, the website for Common Defense is commondefense.us. Please check it out. Their Twitter handle, follow them there, is at Common Defense. And Alex's handle, follow him as well, is at Alexander McCoy 4 Now, I have to tell you, I am a, I'm a big, big fan of veterans because one, as a woman especially, uh, I have the freedom to speak every day, uh, to get paid for it, uh, to do something that I love and, and something that I hope at some point, little pieces here and there make a difference. But veterans clearly make a difference when they fight for those freedoms. My dad is a veteran of the Korean War, my uncle of World War II, my cousin, a Marine of uh, Persian Gulf One and Two. I mean, the list goes on. So uh, I come from a long line of vets of military personnel, and I thank you for your service. Uh, Alex, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, and the media serves an important role in our democracy as well, so thank you for your service too. Oh, that's so sweet of you. God, I'm just like, <laughs> I feel like I should salute you or something. Yeah, I'm very excited about that, but that, no, nowhere near. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to jinx it, but so far nobody's uh, shooting at me, um, and uh, <laughs> and I don't like the haircuts you guys and gals have to have. Uh, let, let's, in all serious, uh, talk about uh, a pivotal moment in the war in Afghanistan because uh, the Biden administration certainly weighs a dilemma. One of the things that you constantly hear from people who loved the former administration and the former president when he was commander in chief um, was that Trump didn't engage in or start uh, any wars. Um, but we are in a war that went on through the last four years. It continues to go on. It's America's longest war, predicted by former Senator John McCain. And we are approaching um, a, a crossroads. Um, can you talk to us about that crossroad that we are approaching in America's longest war, the Afghanistan war? Yes. Uh, so the previous administration, uh, President Trump negotiated a deal to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan completely by May 1st of this year. Uh, so that obviously puts the ball in President Joe Biden's court on whether to follow through on that deal. Now, taking a step back for a second, this is a war that has been going on for 20 years. There are people able to serve in it who were not born when it started. Uh, this is a war that 
you know, we have been through successive administrations. Uh, we have had high troop levels, more than 100,000 troops in Afghanistan under President Obama, uh, low troop levels. We have tried all kinds of different things, but fundamentally, the conditions have not changed. And last year, the Washington Post published the Afghanistan papers, which revealed that many of the top generals and national security elites uh, who have been leading the policymaking regarding the war in Afghanistan have not been honest with the American people and have been privately admitting that they have no strategy for bringing it to an end. So now President Biden has to decide, is he going to be the president to end this war? Uh, and he has a real opportunity to do it uh, by following through on this deal that was made to bring the troops home by that uh, May 1st deadline. But if he doesn't, there could be big consequences. Let's talk about that. Politically, there are some consequences if you make promise if you keep promises your predecessor make who you ran against and won against. Um, but if we put politics aside and we should when we're dealing with human lives and not just the mm -hmm. lives of the military in Afghanistan, U.S. military, but the lives of the people in Afghanistan. So let's look down to what it boils down to. Like you said, withdraw all troops by May, promised by former President Donald Trump. Does that risk a resurgence of extremist uh, dangers? Um, you know, because a lot of people say, you know, well, we've tried that before and we've seen an increase in extremism, mm. whether it's been in Afghanistan or we saw it in Iraq. Yeah, well, I'm not going to lie to you. There are risks no matter what we do. If we don't withdraw the troops, uh, that is essentially breaking a deal that the United States put its good word on making. And we know that the Taliban is going to resurge violence in response to us breaking that deadline. So it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, there's a real chance to get peace. It's difficult. It may not work. Uh, it's going to require the U.S.-backed Afghan government in the capital in Kabul uh, to work with the Taliban to negotiate uh, a, a sharing uh, of power between them and a way to live together and, and build a new um, a, a new plan for the country that will reduce the levels of violence. That's going to be really difficult to achieve. But I believe, and a lot of my fellow veterans believe, that it's going to be impossible by just maintaining the status quo and kicking the can down the road. And there is nothing that a six-month extension or a year's extension is going to change about the fundamental conditions in Afghanistan. So bringing the troops out doesn't mean abandoning the peace process. It means giving a peace process a chance to work. You know, when you say the words peace and Taliban in the same sentence, it, it's hard to, to think that a deal could either could ever be uh, struck. I mean, you have a weak and fractured government there in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. The Taliban has a lot of power, um, fear and lots of weapons and ammo definitely uh, can lead to uh, more power, which is, is frightening, especially uh, if we do pull out. But, you know, in the past administration, when we, you know, tried to have a sit down, if you will, with the Taliban, that went bust because we don't negotiate with terrorists. And then in addition to that, um, you know, they agreed to a ceasefire. And I think it was what, uh, two hours and they violated. In other words, we can't trust the Taliban. So I agree with you. Any president is damned whether they do or they don't. So a couple of questions, because you are mm -hmm. a veteran. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, were you in Afghanistan? 
So I personally did not deploy to Afghanistan, but many of my fellow veterans have. Uh, I worked as an embassy guard in in the United States Marine Corps uh, and served in U.S. embassies in the Middle East, in South America and elsewhere. Can I tell you this, a little sidebar? Um, One week after Benghazi in Libya, I was speaking at the U.S. embassy in Dublin, Ireland, and Mm. I had Three of you assigned to protect me, and I have never felt safer in my whole life. And my going away party was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, you got you guys are great. I mean, seriously, I, I I was like one of you would have been fine, but three I felt like I had a fortress around me. So uh, mm-hmm. I really appreciate. I know personally what you do because I have been the recipient of that great work. Um, you know, but back to Afghanistan, because you have worked with and you have uh, interaction with so many veterans uh, um, or even people who are still actively serving in Afghanistan, what do the troops feel? What do those mm-hmm. um, who, who are there now or who have been there and have left feel? Um, what would they make the choice as? What, what would you advise the president to do if he sat down with the vets and the active service members in Afghanistan or have, you know, uh, workings like you do with people there? What would you all advise him? Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you what we are advising him. It's to follow through on this brief chance that we have to build upon the progress that has been made. Because although the Taliban has not kept to uh, the terms of the ceasefire, they have largely not targeted U.S. troops. Uh, It has been almost a year or a year or more since an American was killed in combat, uh, not from an accident. Uh, in Afghanistan. And if we see the president choose to blow past this deadline, what's going to happen is they're going to be shifting focus towards U.S. troops, targeting U.S. troops once more. Uh, So the troops, you know, that have served in Afghanistan and the broader veteran community is actually very united on what the president should do. Um, There are huge bipartisan majorities, majorities of both Democrats and Republicans and independents who are veterans who all believe that the right answer is to end the war and bring the troops home. Um, and we have met with the uh, Biden White House, uh, common defense veterans uh, met with the White House last week, uh, informing him that this is the consensus among our membership and among the veteran community that he should bring the troops home and end the war. Um, We have been meeting with our members of Congress and many members of Congress who are veterans themselves have been speaking out, uh, calling for an end to the war and bringing our troops home. We have some critical crises, both here in the United States that we need to address and internationally. We have to rebuild our alliances. We have to focus on on stopping climate change. These are things that we cannot do while all our capacity is sucked into Afghanistan. And the opportunity cost is really huge. And veterans recognize that challenge. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you a little more about Afghanistan. I want to touch about Iran. I appreciate you being with us. Once again, folks, I want you to check out the website, like I said, commondefense.us. I'm also on Twitter. Follow them there at Common Defense. And Alex, follow him at Alexander McCoy 4. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back after this quick break. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. 
We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is Alex McCoy, political director of Common Defense, the country's largest membership organization of progressive veterans, more than 180,000 members across the nation. Like I said, Alex is a Marine Corps vet. We're good, glad to have him with us today. And check out the website for Common Defense, commondefense.us, on Twitter, at Common Defense. Follow them there. And Alex can be followed at Alex McCoy, Alexander McCoy, for. Um, Alex, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We were talking about Afghanistan. And um, I specifically wanted to ask you, um, with regard to President Joe Biden, there are two things, and I'm wondering if it gives you and other veterans more confidence in his decision with Afghanistan. One is, you know, his son, his late son, Bo, uh, uh, was a, a veteran. Um, and he always, when he ends what he says, he doesn't say, God bless the USA. He always says, God and God bless our troops every time he speaks. But also further and more specific to Afghanistan, when he was vice president back in 2009, this was one of the times when he and Barack Obama clashed. And of course, Barack Obama won because he was president, not VP. He actually lost a debate internally in the administration about a crucial juncture in the war in Afghanistan. And Joe Biden, as vice president, argued for reducing the U.S. military commitment in order to focus mainly on countering extremist groups. President Obama, by the way, uh, vastly increased troop numbers to 100,000, completely disagreeing with then Vice President Joe Biden. Does his history personally and politically and specifically with Afghanistan as VP in 2009 um, give you and other veterans hope that the president uh, might do what you say both left and right, you know, conservative and uh, liberal uh, vets want with regard to Afghanistan? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, this is a big reason why common defense veterans endorsed and campaigned for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. Um, Donald Trump talked a big game when it came to ending endless war, but his actions spoke otherwise. And the Bidens know, you know, much better than than many families in America, the consequences of these wars, having lost a son, possibly due to medical complications from Bo's deployments. Uh, they have always prioritized the veteran community. Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady, has long had veterans as a top priority for her, uh, originally as second lady in the Obama administration and now once again in, as first lady. So I truly believe that President Biden understands what our community feels and listens to regular people. I think that he faces some significant headwinds from the Pentagon senior officials whose legacies and reputations are deeply connected to uh, the failure to have a strategy in this war um, and don't want to see uh, their their legacy be tarnished by by seeming to have, have failed. They, they want to continue the status quo. They want to kick the can down the road to the next person, just like all the generals before them have done. Uh, and so I think actually that the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, could play a critical role here in advocating uh, for a end to this war. Um, I think it's going to require organizing, though, just like any progressive uh, accomplishment we want to achieve. It's going to require regular people like us communicating with our representatives, communicating to the president that this is a priority because some of the people that are the problem want the president to think nobody cares, but they, but we do. Um, so if you're listening to this, I would encourage you to contact your representative in Congress and your senators in the Senate 
whether they're Republican or Democrat, you'd be surprised at some of the people who are good on this issue. Um, contact them and say that it is a priority for you as a constituent that the president uh, be asked to bring the troops home and end our forever war in Afghanistan. You know, and there is a, a glimmer of hope that you, you know, might get that um, because not just you, you know, a plural uh, you uh, collective. Uh, Biden said during the 2020 campaign that he might keep a counterterrorism force in Afghanistan, but he also would, quote, end the war responsibly to ensure that U.S. forces never have to return. Uh, he said, quote, I would bring American combat troops in Afghanistan home during my first term. So far, this is a guy that has kept the promises that he made in campaign time when we look at his executive orders, the legislation that he has put forth and, and what he has said thus far. Um, he not only said this, he wrote this in response to written questions from the Council on Foreign Relations uh, and uh, the U.S. mission there had shifted uh, from some years ago from combat to advising the Afghan security forces. But he said any residual U.S. military presence in Afghanistan would be focused only on counterterrorism operations. So uh, one might think that that's going to be a huge drawdown, if not complete uh, removal of troops. And the administration did say it is studying from uh, February 2020, uh, February of last year, the so-called Doha deal, in which the Taliban agreed to stop attacking U.S. and coalition, for, coalition forces and to start peace talks with the Kabul gov government. Um, we know that that didn't happen. Uh, and that would be done in exchange of a, a complete withdrawal of foreign troops, like you said, by this May uh, of 2021. Then again, uh, the uh, leaders in Afghanistan, uh, Joe Biden is known throughout the world more so with foreign policy than Donald Trump was, simply because Joe mm -hmm. Biden has been a politician for so many years of his life. And the Taliban may respond differently to a Joe Biden and, and a Joe Biden administration to a Donald Trump, uh, Trump administration. So I certainly hope um, that you get what you want. Yeah, you all know better than I, um, you know, I certainly have been, not been to uh, Afghanistan, uh, but, uh, you know, I agree with you. You're rolling the dice either way. So why not roll the dice and bring the troops home and end mm -hmm. such a lengthy war? Um, anything else give you the last word on Afghanistan before we move to Iran? I will just say that, you know, we have paid the price in blood and treasure, and it is really, it is long past time. Um, we can't see this become yet another generation's war. Very well said. Let's uh, move to Iran. Um, they rejected an offer to negotiate directly with our nation, the United States, in an informal meeting that was proposed by Europeans in order to revive the nuclear deal uh, that was exited three years ago by former President Donald Trump. A spokesman for Iran's foreign ministry, Saeed Katsabada, Katsabadere, uh, said recent actions taken by Washington and Europeans had led Iran to conclude that the time was not right to hold such talks. Now, his remarks came days after President Biden ordered those retaliatory strikes against Iranian-backed militias in eastern Syria that were tied to recent attacks against American and allied personnel in Iraq. Before we go into any sit-down and talk, there was bipartisan support for what President Biden did and bipartisan criticism. Where do you, your organization, and vets come down on the retaliatory strikes against the Iranian-backed militias in eastern Syria uh, that President Biden, as commander-in-chief, ordered? Mm -hmm. Launching airstrikes on a country that we are not in a declared war against is not what ending the forever wars looks like. Um, it is not something that the Congress has authorized to be doing airstrikes in Syria. Um, it is not something that is authorized by any legislation that has passed. 
And moreover, it creates a dangerous risk of escalation and tit for tat. Uh, this is exactly the kind of failed foreign policy strategy that the Trump administration has tried that has failed overwhelmingly in terms of uh, getting Iran to cooperate with U.S. interests. So, you know, the Biden administration knows better on this front. I'm not going to overreact to this one incident, uh, but it is very important that we get some of these uh, Biden administration nominees to senior State Department positions confirmed in the Senate and put mm. in place. Uh, there's people like Ambassador Wendy Sherman, uh, who was one of the lead negotiators of the Iran deal originally, has been nominated to be the deputy, deputy Secretary of State. We need to get her in the position as soon as we can so that we can get some of these experienced hands uh, that know how to handle the situation with Iran uh, and get us back on track. That's excellent that you just said that. You know, I haven't heard anybody say that, and that's common sense, and that makes the most sense, is, look, get get somebody confirmed. Because, you know, really, when you're president, and, and this was for Donald Trump, to anybody who's president doesn't know every single detail of every mm -hmm. single department. It's physically impossible. There's only 24 hours in a day, and people do have to sleep a few hours, right? So this the same for this administration. And, and, and this is why there were so many people during the Trump administration that were concerned about how many vacancies there were mm -hmm. or how much turnover there was. You need consistency. Consistency. Uh, very good point that you make, because this is a woman that not only knows this deal, but knows the players in Iran and the mm -hmm. Iranians, the players know her. So they might be more comfortable sitting down, uh, having a nuclear deal talk with her and a group that she assembles, uh, you know, because they have rejected the proposal by Europe. But then again, if they don't know who they're dealing with or it's a blank slate, that's not exactly. as comfortable as, oh, yes, I know Wendy. You know, I've dealt with her before. They were rational before. They'll be rational again from their perspective. You know, excellent point uh, that you make. Um, you know, and with and with you know, God, regard to this, uh, you know, as a veteran, who, who do you view as America's biggest threat and worst enemy? Just in a sentence, because some people think of Russia, some Iran, some North Korea, some Afghanistan, the list goes on. Who would you say it is? I agree with President Biden. It's climate change. Oh, very well said. Not, not, not on my list. It's not a nation. It's a problem. Thank you, Alex. Alex's handle on Twitter at Alexander McCoy4. CommonDefense.us is their great website and follow them on Twitter at Common Defense. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you to Marky Marcomaldi, our executive producer. Have a good one. Wear your masks. Stay safe. Don't listen to your governor in Texas. Uh, mask up. I'm Leslie Marshall. Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't, because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers, Trucker, Fire Insurance, Exchanges, or Affiliate. Products not available in every state. DePaul University. Here, we do what others don't. Dream what others won't. Driven to leap forward, determined to give back. Here, we ask what must be done. For in doing, we earn success. DePaul University. Here, we do 